A reading from the Psalms. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading this morning is from the 10th chapter of Romans. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend to the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, And in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, 
If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will, guard, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day when we can come together, um, worship you, and learn from you. And we thank you for the great gift of Scripture um, and the story and life and person of Jesus. Um, help us now. Amen. So when the Lord of the Rings movies first came out, started coming out in 2001, I had no experience at all with them before. I barely knew they were based on books. Um, I was totally clueless about plot, characters, everything. I actually remember during the first movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, at about the two and a half hour mark, I looked at my watch and was like, wow, they have to move this along if that ring's going to be dealt with in time. I didn't realize that was the core thing for the whole three movies. Um, but, you know, I was enthralled by those characters in the story. One of the big characters I really remember loving, of course, was Aragorn. Viggo Mortensen did a great job with him. And he was this, in the movie, this great hero who was then reluctantly having to step forward into this other role, king, that maybe he never really wanted. Well, then about five years ago, I finally got around to reading the books. Don't judge me. I was told by someone very close to me that they were really boring and not fun at all. Um, but I was, again, really captivated by Aragorn, a lot more so, I think, in the books. But it wasn't at all hard to notice how different he actually is in the books from the movies, at least as far as I could read them. In the books, there's no real reluctance to Aragorn. He's been waiting, but he knows this is his time. He knows he's the rightful king. He will do what is right here. There's some uncertainty about what happens with the ring and how that's going to work out, but he just knows overall that he has to be acting. He has to move. He has authority, bravery, and power. He takes up the fight um, on behalf of people who don't even know him or trust him, and he's determined to do what he can to win. Uh, there's multiple moments throughout the books where he gets to introduce himself fully to someone and kind of reveal himself. Um, one of those I managed to find um, was when uh, Aragorn and Limli, uh sorry, I just made two people one, Legolas and Gimli, are, are chasing a bunch of orcs who took Merry and Pippin. And they, uh, these three, Aragorn and these two, they end up surrounded by the riders of Rohan. And he finally gets a moment to really take center stage there. And he describes all they've been doing. And then Aragorn goes ahead and fully reveals himself. He throws back his cloak. He draws his sword. It's reforged from the shards of his you know, long-gone ancestor's fabled blade. And then he says everything about himself to those people. He lists off name after name. I won't list them all here. Finally ending on the fact that he really is the king of Gondor. 
And as his friends watch him doing this, he's growing in stature and power and authority and kind of everyone else feels small in comparison. And on his face, they see uh, power and majesty like the great kings of old. It's a really fun moment. I think it happens more than once in those books. Um, it's just that reminder. Aragorn knows exactly who he is. He's powerful. He's the king. He's fighting a battle for his, his friends. And in that moment, that kind of means don't get in his way. Keep that in mind for a minute. So today, as Christian mentioned, this is the first Sunday of Lent. Lent is this season that formed in the church as a way to prepare ourselves for the coming celebration of Easter. It's meant as a time for us to be reminded of our continual need for the grace and love of God. And so it's a time of renewal and repentance. It's especially marked by the disciplines of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And as the first Sunday of Lent, it's probably no surprise to find that the gospel story is the, G- the temptation of Jesus. It's actually always this story, if you're um, keeping track. Of course, because Jesus' example here of prayer and fasting for 40 days is kind of one of the big things behind Lent, obviously the 40 days of Lent, but more than that as well. So, of course, as we think about our own practices in Lent, we often will start to look at this passage of Jesus and these disciplines, and we can wonder what we might learn from them. I'll be honest, speaking for myself, I will do the 40 days without dessert, probably not without all food. I'm just not as strong as Jesus. Um, but as we consider this passage more deeply, we're actually really going to see that inspiring our fasting, it's not the primary concern of this passage. It's actually meant to be very weighty. Um, it's meant to drive home again just how important Jesus is, just how important his victory for us is. As we come to this passage, we really need to see Jesus um, kind of like we just talked about Aragorn from the books of Lord of the Rings. We need to see Jesus entering the story with authority and power. Um, he knows totally who he is. He knows the war he has to fight and win. And he's going to fight for his people. He's going to win where they never could succeed. Actually, you want to be honest, we should look at Aragorn and see something of Jesus. That's what Tolkien was doing intentionally when he made him. That's beyond our conversation for now. So many of the important details as we come to t- today's story... They actually aren't listed out right in this story for us to see. Um, this temptation story comes after a lot of key details about Jesus have already been laid out for us in the gospel. So we can think back a few chapters to the miraculous birth of Christ. When he was, um, that birth was proclaimed coming by angels. He was worshipped by angels at his birth. Um, and especially we're supposed to keep in mind um, the baptism of Jesus. Because this temptation starts immediately after his baptism. So if you were to recall back to the beginning of January, I preached about the baptism then. It's okay, I won't be offended if you forget about it in that moment. Um, but in the baptism, Jesus' identity is really being fully and dramatically displayed for us. It's, it's an important moment of him being baptized and stepping into that, but it's not just that moment of the water. Um, it's this time for us to see who Jesus is as the long-awaited king, the, the prophesied servant who's going to suffer for the people. And very emphatically at the baptism, God proclaims over Jesus that Jesus was God's beloved son. So as readers of this whole story, Jesus' kingship, his sonship, power and authority, those are meant to be front and, set, front and center as chapter 4 starts. It's supposed to be all in mind. We see powerful Jesus on stage, and then we see him facing his first real test here. Jesus, the king, the son of God, the servant, he enters the desert, and then he faces off with our greatest enemy, Satan himself. If this is the first time we encounter this story, we... There should be a lot of tension here. This is really important. So our minds should be starting to think, like, what's going to happen? Will the king prevail? Will the son of God who's come for us live up to his calling, his identity, or will he be defeated by the enemy and then dash our hopes? You know, if Jesus can't defeat the devil here, he really won't be able to save us from his power. 
So right away, we have this deep, important challenge to Jesus' identity and vocation. Is he who he says he is? If so, he has to win. And on top of that challenge, we actually have a more going on, kind of adding stress to this moment. There are two big stories sort of standing behind this moment. They're giving context and meaning and really, again, ratcheting up tension, showing the importance of what is happening here. The first of those stories might be more clearly on our mind. It's the story of the people of Israel, of, of Israel after God redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, and then he led them across the Red Sea on dry land while he was leading them in the wilderness. During that time, people of Israel resisted God. They disobeyed him. They succumbed to temptations again and again throughout that journey. And then that journey moved from just a journey of many months to a journey of 40 years, as those who disobeyed wouldn't be allowed into the promised land. So in the story today, Jesus is really intentionally paralleling that story of Israel. Um, This all starts right after his baptism, like we said, in the Jordan River. The Jordan River um, regularly acts as the stand-in for the Red Sea throughout Israel's story. So we see Jesus starting in his Jordan Red Sea moment, and then he goes from the waters out into the desert, into the wilderness. Though not for 40 years, that would be kind of unhelpful, Um, but for 40 days anyway. And actually, if you think about Israel during that time, we think too of how as Israel went through the wilderness, they had God with them. He was this pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night guiding them. And Jesus, we don't see a pillar, but we see him being led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit as he goes out. And the idea here is very, not much, it's not that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert and then like abandoned by the Spirit. He's led by the Spirit and then is still empowered. The Spirit is with him, giving him strength and helping him in all of this. So there's all these nice parallels between Israel's story and Jesus' story here. Although there's at least one big change maybe on your minds. Israel was fed daily by God with manna in the desert. And Jesus here is fasting for these 40 days. Now either he's going fully without food, or the phrase there in in your scriptures, it might mean that he just went without any prepared food, that he just kind of foraged 40 days in the wilderness desert area. That doesn't mean he had much. So with all of that story, with those parallels in mind, this tension around the moment, the importance of it is meant to increase because we're thinking, but Israel failed in the wilderness. So what about Jesus? Will he do what they couldn't do or will he succumb like they did? Maybe he can win where they couldn't win. But of course, then that question doesn't last very long, does it? We see him resisting the devil for 40 days. The language here is that the devil is against Jesus this whole time. And actually, these three temptations we see are just the ones that were shown, not the only temptations that happened. And of course, Jesus does not give in to temptation here. He holds on. He fights through. And in this moment, we see Jesus just intentionally entering the story of Israel and then changing it, changing the ending. He takes the mantle of it upon himself, and he lives it out again rightly. Jesus shows up as the king who fights his people's battles, and then he does. He wins on their behalf, and it's amazing. But that's not the only story on display here. It's the most direct. But the gospel writer Luke has another one in mind. Uh, In this gospel, between the telling of Jesus' baptism and this story of the temptation, Luke puts the genealogy of Jesus. Um, Luke's telling of the genealogy, it's it's unique, it's got a lot of fun things going on, but he starts with Jesus, and then he works backwards. But he goes a lot further back than we would probably expect. He tells all of his ancestors, and he gets to King David, then he keeps going, and then he gets to Abraham, the perfect stopping point. But he keeps going all the way back to Adam. He calls the Son of God here. Um, He wants to connect Jesus all the way there. And right after bringing up Adam, we come to the temptation. Luke, in part, wants our minds to be thinking about the story of Adam and Eve at this point. 
Adam and Eve placed in that perfect garden with all things provided for, with their God-given tasks to work and keep the garden. They walked regularly with God in the cool of day, but even in that perfect sinless spot, Adam and Eve encountered the temptation and they failed and sinned. Then in comparison, we have Jesus without, in the desert, without food, without human company, in a world full of sin and death, and he resists the temptation and does not sin. So Luke wants us to see with these quick comparisons, of course, Jesus is the king of the Jewish people. He's retelling and redeeming the story of Israel, but he's also king of the whole world. Sin and temptation, the devil, this is everyone's problem. But Jesus comes as the real king, the son of God, and he's those things for all people. He will defeat all of our problems. He destroys all of our enemies. He's even able to undo the first great failure in the garden. So the story is affirming everything about Jesus that we've seen and talked about so far. We see his power, his authority. He's determined and focused. He really is the son of God and the king, and he acts it out for us. We see him fighting and winning the battles that no one else ever could. But the image of Jesus here is not quite complete with this. And this is actually leaving out um, what's probably the most important part of his identity for this passage. And that is Jesus as the suffering servant. And we see this part of who Jesus is, especially as we begin to consider more deeply the temptations that the devil throws at Jesus here. So look at the first temptation. This one I find feels the most relatable to me. Jesus is obviously very hungry. um, And he actually could... This is where it's not relatable to me. He could make that stone bread. And if Jesus did make the stone bread, would, would that be wrong in and of itself? It doesn't seem like an obvious sin. It's not prohibited somewhere in Scripture. Um, eating itself isn't sinful. We can find ways that we can make eating sinful. We can think of gluttony where we make food God in some way. That doesn't seem to be the problem here. The problem, though, it's, it's a little hard to see. It's nice and insidious. We would not expect less from the devil, really. It comes in what he says first before he brings up stones to bread. It's in Satan says, if you are the son of God, then you can go do this, make that stone into bread. Now, if we're following the story, and we are, we know Jesus is the son of God, right? Jesus knows he's the son of God. Satan's actually been following the story as well. He knows he's the son of God. So it's not a question actually about whether or not Jesus is the son of God. It's more about how he will act as the son of God. It works out more like that in the Greek. It's kind of like Satan is saying, if you are the son of God and we're going to assume you are here, well then start acting like it. Make that stone into bread. This is the big problem and big question. If you're the son of God, make the stone into bread. It still doesn't sound that bad in and of itself. So what's the devil's point? You know, it's not if you're the son of God, start a bakery. Um, if you're the son of God, just have a lot more fun with your miracles here. It might be just a little bit like that. It's more Satan saying, Jesus, you're hungry. It's been 40 days without food. Why live like that? You're God's son, aren't you? You don't have to go hungry. Really, he's saying, you're God's son. You shouldn't go hungry here. Go ahead and make the bread. What he's getting at, we'll see this even more deeply in the other temptations too, is Jesus shouldn't have to suffer. He's got the power to avoid it, and so he should avoid it. It's a direct challenge to Jesus' identity and vocation here, but not as obvious as we might expect. At least at first, the devil isn't challenging Jesus' kingship. He's not yet really challenging Jesus as God's son. He's trying to redefine that a little bit, but he's directly challenging Jesus as a suffering servant here. Don't do the suffering thing, Jesus. You don't need to do that. So then we move into the next temptation. 
Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in this dramatic vision. And then he promises to give their authority and their glory to Jesus. If only he'll do that one simple little thing and worship him first. Of course, we might be thinking, but we know this already. Jesus is the king. He's the king even in this moment. He will reign over these nations already. But at this point in Jesus' life, his next throne that he's looking forward to is the the throne of the cross on which he's going to suffer and die. And it's only after that suffering that he will ascend to God's right hand and reign as king from there. So the devil here is offering to speed things up and to skip that pain and suffering part of the plan. He's lying. He doesn't really have the authority to do what he says here, but that's not the point. The point is suffering again. Jesus, why suffer? Why die? Be king right now. You can skip the bad parts. And then the final temptation. We see the main words of the challenge come back specifically. Assuming you are the son of God, Jesus, just go throw yourself down from the temple. It's going to be dramatic. The angels will catch you. Everyone will see. It's a little hard to make sense of. It doesn't seem like much of a temptation to be a daredevil. Um, It's not the point. In line with the other temptations, it seems to be about that cutting away from suffering, avoiding that. So the temple, of course, it's the most important site in all of, of Jerusalem and all of Israel for the is, is Israeli people. Um, and it's always filled with people. It's always filled with really important people. So if Jesus jumps off the temple and everyone sees angels carrying him to the ground, how can anyone say he's not Messiah? How can anyone be against him at that point? The devil is saying, Jesus, you can do this so easy. One dramatic thing, and then you'll be king, you'll be Messiah, you'll be recognized, served. And again, good news, no suffering that way. Make no mistake, from the devil's point of view, these are really good temptations. They offer Jesus a good life. They let him keep his claims to kingship. They offer a way to avoid suffering. No one wants to suffer. No one especially wants to die on a cross. I feel this temptation. I don't want to suffer. But if Jesus succumbed to these temptations, even one of them, that would show not only that he couldn't defeat Satan, but it would mean that he never would take our place and suffer on our behalf. The only way we can ever be saved from our sins is by the suffering and death of Jesus. It is his death that finally and completely defeated sin and Satan. So if Jesus listened to the devil here at all and took the way without suffering, we would all be lost, which is almost certainly his end goal here, the devil's. But of course, Jesus didn't listen. He couldn't. He's God's son. He's the true king. He's the suffering servant. He came to save us. He came to defeat our enemies. He loves us all so much that he willingly embraced his human life that by the end is filled with enormous sufferings, also that we could embrace him and his divine life so that we would ultimately know an end to all of our suffering. So Jesus refused this temptation in this moment, and then he refuses it again and again throughout his life. It was certainly an ongoing one. As you read the Gospels, you can almost see moments when you can tell Satan's there saying, don't choose the suffering. There's other options for Jesus. But Jesus always said otherwise. He taught his disciples that he would have to suffer, that he'd have to take up his cross. And then even when they rebuked him, he continued in that path. He continued again and again to take the way of suffering, the way of the cross, because he was making that the way of our redemption until we finally see him hanging from the cross. And then the leaders and the crowds mock him, and they say, if you are the Son of God, you can come down from the cross. Save yourself if you really are the Messiah, God's chosen one. It's the same temptation, even as he hangs from the cross, and Jesus refuses it to the end. He died as suffering servant and as king, and he died winning our battle that we would never win on our own. Our king, our servant, the son of God, he chose the way of suffering to bring us life. Though the devil fought to avoid all this, he couldn't win. 
Jesus knew who he was. He knew what he had to do. And this is just the start of the devil's defeat in the temptation story. Jesus works that out fully through his life, his death, his resurrection. Jesus chose this path that took the way of suffering and death so he could bring us life. And we do find fullness of life only in him. But then for those of us who do surrender to Christ and we find life, we actually find that our lives too will involve suffering. Actually, that's one of the things Jesus promises his followers. In Luke 9, 23, he tells to everybody around him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, Jesus isn't saying here, just embrace all suffering as from me. There is suffering we can and should avoid. And actually, Jesus isn't just saying that anytime we suffer, we are doing this moment of taking up our cross. What Jesus is saying here is that to truly follow him means that every day we choose him again, even if it means suffering that day and beyond. That every day we have to follow him again, even if it will mean our death. Now, this isn't as big of a question for us yet as it is for many across the world, but we follow the suffering servant. He suffered and died on our behalf, and we're called to be ready to suffer and die on his behalf as well. And in Lent, we're trying to practice this. We're trying to practice little ways that we might suffer for Jesus. So fasting, we're not participating in good things as we fast. That's a step in following Jesus with suffering. It's small suffering, but it's teaching ourselves to give up those good things even for Jesus because Jesus is better than those good things because Jesus is the one who gives all good things. Almsgiving, giving our money to those in need, it's another way we take up our cross because I could have used that money maybe for a new car or a nice night out or just a pair of jeans I needed. Jesus loves those in need, and he calls us to serve and suffer, so I can do this too. I can love those in need with my money, and then hopefully more. None of this is ever something we do, though, under our own power, because we're promised that all of us who love and follow Jesus, all of us who have accepted him as our king, known in his forgiveness, we're promised that we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, and by this gift, the life of Jesus is manifested in our own lives. So we don't daily take up our cross on our own, We daily take up our cross with the power, help, and presence of the one who took up the cross that he never had to bear, but did it anywhere for us. Likewise, Jesus helps us with our temptations. This passage brings to mind temptations a lot, obviously, as Jesus refuses to succumb to those temptations. And certainly, we are called to embrace him and then not sin, but we're never called to do this on our own. We have the very spirit of Jesus inside of us. We have the one who never fell to temptation, who never turned to sin, who defeated the devil with us. He's with us, living in and through us. Now that does mean we have so much more than our own strength to stand on, to stand up to those temptations that we have to face. It also means, much more importantly, that we already have the victory of Christ. We've already won. So we do fight, we do resist, and successes come, but we will still know failures But the fight's already been won. The war has been decided, so it's not on us to succeed. Instead, even as we fail, Jesus is still with us. He suffered for us in order to be with us. He's faithful to forgive always. He's faithful to love always because of what he's already done, because of what he's already won for us. So Jesus is the victorious king, suffering servant, son of God. He has made the way of the cross to be the way of life. So throughout this Lent, especially now, may we know more and more our life as the way of the cross um, in Christ. Let's pray. Christ, thank you for being our king and suffering servant. 
for winning the battles we cannot win and for bringing that into our lives. Help us to hold fast to you, to see you at work, um, and uh, just to know your way more and more. Amen.